the recent fires in California, Australia, and now Hawaii are unlike anything we've ever seen before. They are being called forest fires and wildfires, but they are clearly something very different. These fires are burning homes into a white powdery ash footprint, while often leaving the surrounding green trees and shrubs practically untouched. In extreme cases, forest fires can reach temperatures up to 1500 degrees Fahrenheit, and the melting point of aluminum is 1220 degrees Fahrenheit. So it is possible for an extreme forest fire to melt aluminum. But there are cars with puddles of melted aluminum that were clearly not in the wildfire area. And melted glass, which has a melting point around 2,500 degrees Fahrenheit. These are unexplained anomalies. In the California fires of 2018, cars were randomly bursting into flames on the freeway with no surrounding fires. We've seen these same anomalies in New York City on September 11th, 2001. Cars completely burned out with no explanation. In Maui, these unnatural fires spared the homes of the rich while burning the native homes of the working class. With precision, these fires destroyed the most envied, high-valued areas of Maui. For decades, directed energy weapons have been classified but they have been on the public record for several years now. Directed energy weapons, known as DUES, have the ability to burn homes with this sort of precision. But in order to be this precise, the area would have to be mapped out. In January of this year, green lasers were seen over Hawaii, which could best be described as a geospatial array for mapping terrain. We have seen that among the ashy ruins, there are blue-colored objects that have somehow survived the devastation. Blue cars. Blue umbrellas. A blue boat. Blue planters. Videos online are going viral that show how lasers can easily burn through certain colored objects, but objects that are colored blue remain unharmed. Directed energy weapons include lasers, millimeter wave, and microwave. They are all based on light frequencies, and different wavelengths of light affect colors differently. For example, in laser tattoo removal, different wavelengths are used for removing different colors. And this is because color is a quality of light. Each color has its own frequency. Interestingly enough, the frequency of the color blue is 6.66. Hi, Steve here. After looking at so much of the technology that's being used, I think I really understand why the globalists are so arrogant and so confident that their agenda will win out, that they really can't be stopped by anyone. Because the technology that they control is so extremely powerful, and because people don't understand that it's being used, is why they have a tactical advantage. Many technologies have been used about as long as I've been around on this earth, but for most of us, we've lived in a very ignorant and naive consciousness. Many of these technologies could be used to save us from serious hurricane damage and loss of life. Other technologies could be used to save our lives and increase our health, but they're not. 
It's all in who controls the technology. They're very content to keep this technology hidden from you and labeled as misinformation whenever you look for it. This is why the only intervention is with God, and only God can help us. Do you fear little ants crawling in front of you on the pavement? Neither do they fear our protests, our outrage, or our concerns about the inequities and injustice being perpetrated on this world today. Asking if weather modification is real is like asking if the sun or the moon is real. And asking if these technological weapons are real or not is like asking the same question over again. It's no wonder they feel a grandiose sense of power over the rest of mankind. After all, how can any man stand against an enemy that's perched high above in the heavens or floating on a ship miles away from access by the ones being attacked? With weaponry that almost appears to be supernatural against a natural man, you can understand why they think they're gods, but they're not. Not even close. Between genetically designed viruses, robotic AI technology, and all the other technologies they've discovered, which they apparently use against us, does the threat of World War III even concern anyone? The reality is most people in America still have no clue. Oh yeah, they're concerned with the price of food at the stores and the price of gas at the pumps, but they still have it. How will they feel when they don't anymore? when they suffer at the hands of the next attack from technologies and weaponry we don't even see. My name is Ben Livingston. I'm the first person to ever see the cloud with the intention to cause it to do military damage. I know I can say that, and I did it several times before the next person did it. I was cleared top secret. Eyes only, I was as high as you could get. I got interested in weather modification when I was a farm boy. Uh, I never could understand why the clouds wasn't bigger, had a little more shade and was chopping that cotton. So I got in the Navy, uh, I managed to get into meteorology school, and I think that's really where I learned the most of my physics. I was assigned to the Typhoon Squadron in, in Guam, where I served for three years as a flat, flat meteorologist and uh, meteorological engineer. From there, I came back to additional school at Texas a &I University down in Kingsville, and from, from Kingsville, they sent me to uh, the Hurricane Hunters squadron in Jacksonville, Florida. That squadron, of course, had just become involved in Project Storm Fury. So when I reported to, uh, to that duty station as a meteorological engineer, I was immediately uh, uh, designated the uh, military member of the Storm Fury Advisory Board. We were doing quite a lot of testing work out over the uh, test range at China Lake, California, where we uh, drop cloud seeding flares or silver iodide generators into clouds or just where we wanted to to see what the reaction was. We were the first ones to fly into hurricanes for the purpose of modifying them, uh, if you will. That was Project Storm Fury. I began to, to be extremely confident that we could, could do whatever we, about what we wanted to with a hurricane. The Project Storm Fury had been going on since 1961 and they had already done, or had done 
two experiments, one in 61 and 63. Well, by 1964, when I was there in 1964, I wrote the plan and, and uh, started to have a track and a mission for every flight that was uh, on the hurricane cloud seeding experiments. So we had documentation for everything. Operations and product current fear are very positive. His report said that we claim they should consider now if a hurricane heads straight towards Miami. Some wanted to continue hurricane reductions and the other part did not want to. It was a political football and there are people that were wanting to do more pure research and less application engineering wanted to kill Project Storm Fury. So they built up an artificial barrier that prevented hurricanes from ever qualifying to be experimented or seeded for damage reduction. NOAA research people came up with uh, data that suggested that if a hurricane went through a certain little geographical area, there was no history in 100 years that a hurricane had been through that area ever reached land. So they made a requirement that the storm must go through this area of, I call it an area of improbability, before it would qualify for uh, uh, hurricane damage reduction attention. So after uh, about 10 years, no hurricanes went through there and and the people, uh, that is the scientists who didn't want to spend money on uh, aircraft reconnaissance, decided, well, it's just too expensive. We can't wait any longer. So they killed the project altogether. I am terribly disappointed that the government have decided a long time ago not to do the hurricane damage reduction anymore. They can uh, talk about uh, the scientifically uh, uh, rigorous data, the inability of civilian aircraft and so forth to collect this data, and poo-poo the empirical, or they just say the observations that you that you make uh, just by looking out the window or watching your instruments, saying it has no value. In order to change the weather and know that, it, that you're changing it, you must have instrumentation or document it. So my line of business really was to design and make equipment that would document changes in the weather. You take a cloud that Mother Nature or God has provided and you alter that cloud. Well, the reason the cloud doesn't expand on its own in most cases is the fact that there's a lot of moisture, but there's no nuclei. There's nothing for the moisture to stick to. So when you provide the silver iodide nuclei, it causes the water to coalesce to that nuclei. And when it does, it releases heat, which means everything starts to rise. If you produce enough nuclei at the right places in a cloud, there's essentially no limit to how fast and how far it'll grow because it just keeps releasing heat as it goes up. And of course, the heat keeps trying to rise. If you're in the business of trying to kill clouds, then of course you go up to the area where there are uh, some vertical shear, the wind blowing some direction or other, and you provide the nuclei at a level above where the raindrops are. They are then so light that the, that the wind vertical shear merely blows the top of the cloud away. Then there's no place for the coalescence or the nucleation to take place. Well, the, uh, the Joint Chiefs of Staff had been wishing for quite some time in terms of years 
that they had some way of, of slowing the truck down in Vietnam. That led me to advise the Joint Chiefs of Staff that we had a potential weapon system. And so I was, uh, I was asked to uh, start to put together a top secret operation to go to, to Vietnam to see if we couldn't make it rain more over there as a, as a military operation. All the roads over there were uh, dirt roads and, uh, and when it rained it caused them a lot of problems. So that during the monsoon season, there was so much rain and water in the roads that uh, the trucks really couldn't move very freely. Our mission was to make it rain uh, during the dry season. On that particular day, the clouds were very small. There just weren't any real big thunderstorms or anything like that. Uh, but I picked a cloud that was sitting out essentially by itself uh, with a number of small clouds I'm talking about clouds at whose tops were somewhere near the freezing level, but not high enough to really grow. And I nurtured one of those clouds until it finally got, got it in well past the freezing level. And then the cloud developed a lot of convective activity and it started sucking clouds into it. Just building up and building up. And, in, and I took a series of pictures where I called, them, called for 41 minutes. Uh, by the end of 41 minutes, uh, we had flown up to over 65,000 feet and we still couldn't reach the top of the cloud. So we knew we had a barn burner there. And by the next morning, we had washed out everything in the world and, and did a lot of damage to people and all that sort of thing. But uh, it was a real success as far as blocking the roads off. With just two of us involved, myself and a civilian, uh, but we conducted that operation with aircraft, military aircraft, uh, mostly from Marine Corps, and then shortly thereafter we started involving the U.S. Air Force. Well, we actually began the 3rd or 4th of September, and by the 13th of October, we had a couple of storms that had actually washed out bridges, and uh, the results were so successful until uh, I was called down to Saigon to uh, brief the generals, the Air Force generals, the Army generals down there, and they suggested that I need to go make this report to President Johnson back in Washington, D.C. They were excited about it, but they had no authorization, if you will, to use this as a military weapon system. I was there in very top secret uh, classification as a research project. That's the way we were able to conduct the mission without uh, the international community, if you will, being apprised of what we were doing and how we were doing it. It was kept top secret for a long time. It was first reported that this was going on in 1972. That's the first time the Congress ever heard about it. So as you can see, it was, uh, it was not something everyone knew about for a long time. You were the head of what base? You were the head of uh, acting commander of what base? I was the acting commanding officer at the uh, Corona Naval Weapons Research Center. And they worked on a lot more there than just weather weapons, didn't they? Yes, they do, but, but my main contribution uh, at Corona was to write a, a plan for uh, weather modification control for the whole world uh, at any given time. We would, could send a number of airplanes with, with uh, materials and dispensing equipment we had and probably control the weather all the way around, all the, way around the world. And this is when the uh, Senate got wind that something was being going on in Vietnam that they didn't know about, and they wanted to know about it. Well, it's interesting to note 
that this project ended in 1972. It started in 1966. So you can see the secrecy. Senator Pale uh, was a kind of aggressive senator about people doing things that the Senate didn't know about. He got wind of it and he asked for a briefing. And, uh, and a Colonel Sasser, I believe his name was, may have been something else, but a Colonel, uh, Air, For Air Force Colonel, gave them a briefing, gave his committee a briefing, and told them it had been going on since 19, in a research configuration from 1966 to the present time. President Johnson was, was very mild. Uh, it turned out that uh, he know, had known my father. So we had a little old homecoming there for just a few minutes. And then he asked me what I was doing and told me he had read and been briefed on what we were doing and how we were doing it. And he asked me my opinion of it and asked if I thought that we could continue that. I said, well, I see no reason why we can't continue it because we'll have the same kind of weather coming up again in March of next year and we can seed and make rain right into the monsoon system. And we can, can then extend the monsoon system uh, well past this August end to maybe the first week in November. Uh, he didn't say a whole lot about it except uh, he thought it was real weird, if you will, that people could take a little a little weather modification and change the whole climate in the country. When I came back uh, to the states where I had time to do something uh, as far as weather modification was concerned, I went back to my my duties, if you will, uh, as being the military member of the joint of the uh, Project Storm Fury uh, uh, Advisory Committee. The hypothesis for how to do this had been designed, developed by uh, Dr. Joanne Simpson and her husband, Dr. Robert Simpson, was the director of Project Storm Fury for a number of years. And uh, we uh, followed her hypothesis, which said that if you uh, seed enough clouds in the right front quadrant of a hurricane where the energy cells are, uh, you may build or a second, a second eye, or at the minimum make this original eye much bigger, which meant you have a reduction in wind velocity. The composition of a hurricane uh, may have dozens of energy cells in it, and they're like the pistons in an engine. They just chug, chug, chug. They get stronger and stronger and stronger because they feed off the warm air below them. And they eventually turn into this uh, thing they call a hurricane with all these energy cells in it. We know where those energy cells are. We know what makes them tick. We have the materials, if you will, to alter those, to alter those uh, energy cells and decrease the maximum surface winds in a hurricane. On August 18th in 1969, uh, Hurricane Debbie was seeded five times at two-hour in, two intervals. <clears throat> and the maximum uh, wind speeds had decreased by 115 to 80 miles per hour. That's a pretty remarkable reduction of, of uh, more than 45% in damage reduction potential. The cloud was left, the storm was left alone on the 19th and on the 20th went back and seeded that cloud a second time and decreased the winds again to just under 100 miles per hour, per hour or about 24% more damage reduction potential. The results from the Hurricane Debbie 
experiment seemed so positive that many individuals believed the project should go operational, seeding major hurricanes that threaten land. A team of scientists at Stanford Research Institute at Stanford University did a decision analysis on all past seeding events, including the Esther, that's the 1961 and 1963 experiments. <coughs> experiment. Dr. James Masson of that group, reflecting their views, stated, we claim they should consider seeding now if a big hurricane comes straight from Miami. These scientists said the government may have to accept responsibility for not seeding and thereby exposing the public to higher probabilities of severe storm damage and possible higher death tolls. A number of people, uh, scientists if you will, who didn't necessarily endorse applications engineering in these storms. They thought they needed more scientific data. They demanded that a third party investigate all of what Storm Fury had done. Stanford University uh, was the party or the institution that did this study of the activity Project Storm Fury had done. In summary, the results of the Hurricane Deb experiments seemed so positive that many individuals believe the project should go operational, seeding major hurricanes that threatened any landmass. And a team of scientists at Stanford Research Institute uh, did a decision analysis on all past uh, seeding events, including the ones in 1961-1963. And Dr. Matheson from Stanford University, the head of the Research Institute, uh, reported that the government may have to accept responsibility for not seeding and thereby exposing the public to higher probabilities of severe storm damage and possible higher death tolls. It's interesting that we were able to do that and have the results confirmed by Stanford University in 1969. Since 1947, the government has used the excuse, has used the logic or reasoning uh, that uh, liability is a killer for weather modification. But that's not why Project Storm Fury was, was killed, and that's not why they aren't doing it now. Uh, in my opinion, the reason they're not doing it is well stated by uh, a very senior official from the National Center of Atmospheric Research at Boulder, Colorado, and he says, even if a well-supported theory of hurricane modification existed, the potential legal aspects of weather modification on this scale argue strongly, in my opinion, against any such efforts. Just a few of the many possibilities include, A, the storm is not modified at all, but some people perceive that it is, get hurt and sue the modifiers. The storm is modified according to theory, but still does not significantly damage, does significant damage, and some people blame the modification on the damage even though the modification actually reduced the overall damage and impact. And third, the modified storm produced winners and losers, and the perceived losers sue. For example, what if soon after the seeding, the hurricane abruptly changed course? This happens all the time in nature. The uh, people affected by the new course might well blame the modification effort and sue. Yeah, if you study the situation, you, you may learn, uh, and very diabolically so, that you don't like to believe this, but there's a possibility, and the economics of it 
verified the fact that there is so much damage done that the construction industry in general all over the United States benefits because the cost of material goes up. So the insurance company uh, may or may not gain from having these damage reductions uh, take place. As far as the energy industry is concerned, we all know that they get their money back almost immediately by increasing the price of their product. And it's not unheard of to believe that, uh, that the actions performed by FEMA or the government is not a surefire way to buy votes. So there may not be any, po any political or economic motivation on the government or some major industries part to uh, reduce the damage of hurricanes. The material that we, uh, that we uh, put in the atmosphere are not toxic. And by volume, by volume, they're nothing. It's my contention that we have a, a sure defense against those, those liability lawsuits. Uh, we place in our seeding materials a trace element of zinc or some other exotic material so that any rainfall that falls uh, that uses our nuclei to cause the rainfall or the hail, whatever comes out of it, uh, all they need to do is collect some of that water, find some of our trace, the traces of some of our material, and we would then concede that we had something to do with it. And the other, of course, good defense is that we've had such horrendous hurricanes uh, the last several years without any weather modification in the past 30 to 35 years. You sure can't blame a weather modifier for causing damage. The other governments are using weather control uh, for many purposes. And Indonesia, for instance, Canada, Turkey, Greece, Russia, they're all using weather control to their benefit. And we aren't. Well, for, for several years, the Russians have had uh, weather control product as one of their national goals. They're using weather control primarily to uh, protect the, the large sites or the sites where large numbers of people are congregating for a celebration. So, uh, such as in, in Moscow or Stalingrad, when they have these big military events there or parades so forth, they bring their cloud seeding people in and their objective is to keep it from raining or to knock the clouds down. And it's not just the Russians that do that. Our company, for instance, does the same thing in Calgary every summer. Uh, the idea is to uh, keep the hailstorm and the heavy rain down so that uh, so the construction business can can flourish. Uh, it's a it's a, uh, a a contract we've had for nine years, and every summer we send two airplanes up there, or whatever it takes, and their only their only mission is to prevent hail and. Uh, keep weather from doing damages in the city limits of Calgary. You've obviously been successful. Well, obviously, yes. It's just one of those things that we we know how to do, and uh, uh, since the, the government hasn't done it, the corporate people in America have just built the instruments. They've installed them in their airplanes, but we have to be, we have to be just as sure of what we do as the government would like to think they have to be. The men, the materials, 
the aircraft, and all of the other uh, support equipment you need are available today to uh, reduce the damage of hurricanes very significantly, and I'm talking significantly as more than as being more than 35 or 40 percent. The roof doesn't lift off the house until about 105 miles an hour. If you reduce the damages in hurricanes by 35, 40%, you're going to save 90% of the damages done by them. Because once you get down below 100 miles an hour, there's not a whole lot of damage occurs from, from the winds and hurricanes. The attack they've taken is that they're willing to, to spend money they haven't got to repair places that are not repairable, order the people to evacuate and the people come back and their house is blown away. We think, that, we think that's foolishness. We think that we ought to be trying to save those houses, let the people evacuate, but have them, have, have them come back to a house with the furniture in it. Our aircraft can carry over 400 uh, cloud sheeting units. Now, those back in, in Project Storm Fury days could only carry 52. And the fact that we fly two and a half times as fast and we know exactly where we are all the time, we feel like we have a much better uh, opportunity or better chance of reducing these hurricanes by even more than they were able to in, in uh, Storm Fury. Number one, we would have attacked Cretina before she passed the, uh, the southern tip of Florida uh, coming across the Gulf of Mexico because there were a lot of people or a lot of lives at stake there. Uh, we may not have done anything with, with Cortina uh, until she got out in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico. But from then on, and I'm, I mean the middle of the Gulf of Mexico, I'm talking about to the eastern edge of the oil production. When it got close enough to do damage to the, to the oil drilling, drilling and producing platforms, we would have started working on Cortina right then. And uh, we would have... Uh, we would have uh, seeded those, those energy cells in there based on data from the satellite, radar satellite uh, information. We would have picked the energy cells in that storm and at least every 12 hours, we would have been out there seeding those, those energy cells. Ben, why hasn't there been a lawsuit against the government for not stopping these hurricanes? You know, I don't know, I'm, I'm not a lawyer, but uh, I really don't understand why, because the government certainly has re had reneged on its responsibility to the citizens of the country to protect them. Uh, they took unlimited steps in creating the, the uh, Department of Homeland Defense and spent trillions or hundreds of billions of dollars on that thing. Uh, but yet a hurricane comes along that does more damage than that and they won't even acknowledge the fact that uh, there's some way to to prevent it or slow it down. Well, the problem we have right now is that uh, while we've we've contacted every senator in the U.S. Senate, all 100 of them, we've had one mediocre response from one of them. Uh, you give the impression that they just don't care what happens about the hurricanes, and uh, we're trying to. We have presented a proposal to them. To do damage reduction, hurricane damage reduction uh, for the two, for the year 2006, and it amounts to around six thousand dollars a month. But we have a, enough enough airplanes, we have enough people uh, in our company that we can do that. We need to be out there 
seeding these hurricanes. And if we don't get the results that we think we're going to get, then we can say we're not ready for it. But that's not going to be the case. see your need for a savior, then I can't help you. There's no one that can keep you from death when it comes to your door, but there is someone who sacrificed himself so that when that day comes to you, you will not die forever, but you will live. You don't need a religion or rituals or the philosophies of mankind. You need a relationship with the son of the living God, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that we might not perish, but have everlasting life. There's a link in the description box below titled, If You'd Like to Pray to Accept Jesus Christ as Your Lord and Savior. If you want to choose life, click on that link and pray this prayer today. That's real life insurance. Think about it.